0: Welcome to the Upreneur Podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Straub. The Upreneur Podcast is in partnership with Score Broward, which is a nonprofit that's been helping entrepreneurs and small business owners start, develop, and grow their businesses for more than 52 years. The Upreneur Podcast and Score, we interview influential entrepreneurs and executives here in Florida about their success we will gain insight into their lives, the struggles they've faced, how they've overcome, and advice they can give to people that are starting a business or getting into their industry. So if you own a business in Florida or you're thinking about starting one, this podcast is for you. Good afternoon, I am here with Stacy Moore, the founder and ACL commissioner of the American Cornhole League, which we'll get into and talk about in a second. Stacy is a serial entrepreneur, was an angel investor, spend some time as a portfolio manager. We'll talk about his path into starting the American Cornhole League and what it's all about. Stacey, welcome. Thanks for joining us.
1: I appreciate you having me, Jeremy. I'm excited to be here and uh, share what I can for other entrepreneurs out there.
0: Well, you know, I, I loved researching the American Cornhole League for this podcast. So why don't, we before we get started, start talking about Uh, your path. Talk a little bit about just what cornhole is. I don't, I'm hoping everybody knows if they've done any barbecue or tailgate, they're probably aware of it, but maybe just kind of refresh their memory uh, and talk about what cornhole is.
1: Yeah, certainly. So cornhole is, is primarily known as a tailgating game that uh, people play at either tailgates or in their backyard. It's played with six by six, one pound bean bags on a four by two, Piece of board that slopes and has a hole in it. So the objective is pretty simple. You try to throw the beanbag from 27 feet into the, onto the board and into the hole on the other side of the court.
0: Well, I'm glad you explained the distance because I feel like we <laughs> walk it out,
1: but yes. I don't know
0: if you've ever done it right in a tailgate on it. It's a, a lot, yeah, a
1: lot, there's, there's a lot of people out there that play casually from a lot of different lengths. And anytime you're playing it as a recreational game, you can put it wherever you want to put it. <laughs> and obviously, I've
0: seen them all customized and designed for uh, everybody's favorite team and whatever it is. So you, you see a lot of personalized ones. Yeah, I, I actually I grew up in Pennsylvania. We used to play a game called Quates, which was uh, similar, but it was on a slate because I grew up in a Slate Belt, and you were throwing a ring on. It, it was like a cross between now uh, horseshoes and uh, cornhole is what I felt like it was. And then yeah. that disappeared by the time I graduated college, and all I saw was cornhole after that. It's been about twenty years since I was in college. But, yeah. So talk about how you ended up making this tailgating game into a league. What, why would you start a league from here? Because, I mean, you got a three-year deal with ESPN. You know, you're getting celebrities talking about the game, whether it's on Twitter or social media or even on the red carpet talking about what they've been up to. And it's been on a number of the morning talk shows, uh, including yourself being on there talking about it. Yeah. How would you come up with the idea of starting a league for Cornhole?
1: Yeah, it really just kind of kind of evolved. We were doing – Uh, sponsor activation events with all sorts of different tailgating games. So just like you mentioned, you grew up playing a version of a tailgating game that may have been specific to your area. There's a lot of those out there, right? And there's a lot of other tailgating games out there like ladder golf and washers and, and uh, different sorts of things. And so, you know, we started a company called inside tailgating as a content brand to cover the tailgating lifestyle. And tailgating games was a part of that. And one of the things that happened was I just saw people playing cornhole more passionately and intensely than other tailgating games. And so I started watching it closer and closer. I was talking to the players, trying to figure out why they took this particular tailgating game more seriously than others. And the more I watched it, the more I talked with people, I got to understand that, hey, there's some real strategy to this. There's some evolution that can go on with the equipment on the equipment side of things, and it's entertaining to watch. And so I felt like that uh, there was an opportunity to evolve it from a tailgating game into a sport after basically just listening and watching and talking to people for a couple of years. And so, uh, you know, once I made that decision, we decided to formally uh, start the American Cornhole League on the mission to, to make cornhole a professional sport. And then to make it an international sport,
0: I love how your research and development was just going
1: to tailgates, hanging out with (laughs) people, asking what's going on. I mean, that that will make all entrepreneurs jealous, right? I mean, that is the best kind of. R&D you can do is just hang out at tailgates. (laughs) Exactly. I was thinking about what you were saying.
0: (laughs) So how is this, how to turn this into business? Obviously you, you, you know, you, before this, you were doing some angel investing, which we'll get into uh, in a little bit of your background, but I'm curious as we're, we're talking about the ACL, because most people might not know the business behind leagues. They understand it in an NFL or they understand like, uh, major league baseball and that, but you know, you're starting out a small league, you got an ESPN uh, deal, but, you know, I'm sure there's some type of sponsorships in that. but can you just talk a little bit behind what the business is of a sports league or even a, like a league like this, that's just starting out?
1: Yeah. So, you know, most niche sports out there that are developing a league, right? Their primary revenue is going to come from memberships and events, right? So people will typically pay a membership fee to be a part of a league, and then they'll pay an event fee to go and play in an organized event. So that's where we started, similar to any other niche sport. You know, we just started putting together events. And so we put together a tour specifically for the Carolinas. We created a point system around that. So one of the unique things that we did with our niche sport was we created a a point system that had some stickiness to it, that encouraged people to play in multiple events. So it kind of led from, hey, you can play in your local area, then you can travel and play in a couple of these regional events and you have a different point tier system for that. And then based on how you do in those events, you can qualify to come play in the championship. So that was the general premise uh, on how we created our our point system. And we found that that had had a lot of stickiness and was uh, a little bit different than what than what other sports out there, other niche sports out there uh, were doing.
0: Well, it's almost like you created a season that you had to, to, yes. get, to be able to get to the playoffs on it. So, yeah. and what's great about it is, I'm assuming as you did your research, <laughs> anybody can play. You don't you don't have to be athletic to play. You don't have to be a certain age to play. Yeah. You know, there's not you know any uh, particular advantage, and you can practice indoors, outdoors. It, it doesn't matter. So you have a a pretty large market, but to talk through it, how to just start to do research and find out even the business model behind this. I don't know if you've invested in leagues before or not, but, you know, I, I didn't know that the money was made in membership of events. You know, I didn't know that, how leagues have succeeded or not succeeded. I would have thought sponsorships right off the bat. And that's not where I guess the money is right in the beginning. Yeah. Um, right? So talk through a little bit about, you know, what resources that you might've tapped into, or people you might've tapped into, or, or maybe just some strategic partners you put in place to be able to determine what would the business model was gonna be and even to start to create that idea of going, you know what, let's do a point system, let's get people to wanna to go to multiple events.
1: Yeah, so you know, for me, I grew up uh, as a competitive tennis player and so a lot of my initial thoughts revolved around how the USTA is structured and how they were able to structure a self-rating system within tennis for the average player and and the casual player. So if you equate cornhole similar to tennis as, quote, being a lifetime sport, many people will say tennis and golf, bowling, uh, I think, are are examples of, of lifetime sports that have been around for a long time that people have played in an organized way, but recreationally in a non-professional way, right? So I looked at a lot of of those businesses out there. And then actually early on in my career, I actually graduated from college in three and a half years to go work for a semi-professional basketball league. That was a startup semi-professional basketball league, uh, which gave me insight into a professional model in sports. I mean, obviously you can research NBA, NFL, this and that. But a big influence and something that I learned a lot from that I, that I apply to what I'm doing here today uh, was my experience in the startup of this semi-professional basketball team that was within, a, within the startup of an actual league. So we had both the actual Global Basketball Association was a startup league and we were a startup team within that league. And so to be able to have that kind of experience early on and be able to attend those kind of meetings as as a very young entrepreneur just was a great learning experience something that uh that i believe was 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 invaluable and and a big part of what is making me successful today
0: do you think that um, if you look back and, and go through, because obviously you, you, right out of school, you started to spend time in a league that was probably just starting to figure out how to be profitable and make money. Maybe it never was, who knows?
1: Never was. it Yeah, it <laughs> shut down after a year and a half. So you know, so I had a failure right out of the gate. <laughs>
0: so you, you started kind of, and I look at him like my, my grandfather. I asked him, he was in the bakery business and he ran multiple bakery plants and worked as an executive for a, a large grocer, a publicly traded company. But I asked him, how he got in the business that a 17 year old decided for me. And what he meant was that at 17 years old, he decided to go work in <laughs> a manufacturer as Baker and that's how he ended up 50 years later, still doing it. And All it was right. interesting, as you said, now you're running a league and you started a league, but you, you were involved in one right out of school as you did angel investing and you invested in a number of different companies and saw a number of different founders. Did you find that most of them, including yourself, ended up leaning towards really where they started to do um, start businesses or even make business well was things that they were into early on and just kind of stayed with it? Or have you seen a lot of people move to other industries just from your experience as an angel investor?
1: Yeah, very, very few startups uh, have I run across where the founder did not have some level of experience in that particular industry. I think every now and then you'll run across you know, just some kind of savant that can be successful in any type of industry. And I think, and maybe you saw that some in the dot-com craze and, and, you know, with startups or, you know, when apps were starting to get big, you know, someone could develop an app for an industry that they didn't have any experience in, but they knew how to build a community or something like that. So, like, if someone knows how to build a community mm-hmm. over on the technology side of things or in the technology industry... Can that translate to building a cornhole community from a technology perspective? It probably can, right? So, but for the most part, entrepreneurs that I ran into certainly had at some level of experience in the industry where they're trying to start a business.
0: So talk a little bit about your path into entrepreneurship. So you graduated school in three and a half years. You started working with the league, uh, with the semi-pro basketball
1: league right away.
0: Were, were you an employee for a few years for a few different companies before you went off on your own?
1: Yeah. I mean, I grew up my, you know, my, my family, my father was a business owner. My mother started up some small businesses. So while my parents were divorced, I, I did come from a family that owned and operated businesses. So that's what I kind of grew up with. Yeah. And so I worked for my dad uh, in the summers when I was, when I was in high school and, and college uh, did some odd and end things for, for my mom. She was an interior decorator at a retail store uh, at one point in time. And so you know, I got those kind of experiences from a manufacturing company to an interior design company to just a lot of different things. So I was able to get exposure to, to a lot of stuff. And coming out of college was when my father and my grandfather were the founders of this particular team in Greensboro. So it was a family uh, venture and a family failure. <laughs> right out of the gate. But we had another successful business called Sally Foster Gift Wrap uh, that sold gift wrap to schools for fundraising program as a fundraising program. And we ended up selling that to a a publicly traded company. And then after that, I went to graduate school, got my MBA in international business from South Carolina, and went to work for some large companies after that. So I kind of had some family business experience slash entrepreneur experience early on. Got my MBA, went and worked for uh, some large companies, a large diversified textile manufacturer. That I did some M and A work, and then I jumped over to to Bank of America and became a portfolio manager on the small cap growth fund, and uh, and managed that fund for a few years before deciding to. Uh, go out and try to fund other entrepreneurs and become an angel investor. So it's been quite an interesting path of met a lot of people, touched a lot of different businesses, have some successes and some failures along the way. And then I just got the bug to where I saw how much money was being spent in tailgating. And I said, I gotta figure out how to make some money tailgating for a living. That's what, <laughs> that's what I wanted my goal and objective to be. So I started you know, disposing of my angel investments whether they disposed on their own or I was able to exit them, <laughs> and really focus on creating a tailgating incubator, for lack of a better word, had to become instead of I was always kind of a buy side guy, right? When you're that a portfolio had to be like manager, the
0: office spaces for an
1: incubator. It <laughs> <laughs> was all games the whole time to do it. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So I mean, it was uh, yeah. So it was just an interesting transformation to go from from being on the buy side as a portfolio manager and an investor in startups to now all of a sudden I'm out there trying to get business deals done and trying to sell sponsorships for the first time and becoming more of a sales side guy was a difficult, difficult thing for me to do because I was always used to people coming to me, asking me for something, asking me for money, asking me for all these other things. Now I had to go out and ask other people for money.
0: Right. Different deal. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, talk talk real quick about the transition from portfolio manager to entrepreneur obviously you had the family had success they had a couple that a good exit even if there was some failed businesses going through i'm sure the family did well and then you know you went off on your own and portfolios managers do pretty well for themselves in general so you, you probably did all right yeah. why walk away from that to start being an angel investor was it Just a passion of yours that you just wanted to go build your own portfolio of that. I mean, it's it's not like it's easy to pick winners. uh, Yeah, no,
1: no. I mean, angel, right? Yeah, the the story is really interesting. So, I was a portfolio manager at Bank of America. Right, Uh, number one, banks have a different pay scale than other mutual funds and hedge funds and and that sort of thing. However, we were uh, the team that I was on was extremely successful. Uh, I was fortunate to be a part of that team. We were the number one ranked fund uh, in the Lipper universe, but we were, we were a billion dollar fund and a hundred billion dollar asset management platform. So a billion dollars is a ton of money to me and you, I'm sure. Right. It's a massive amount of money, but in the grand scheme of things, the way that bank of America looked at it, not so big out of a hundred million out of a hundred billion. So they had a consulting study and, uh, right? And so the consultant said, small cap management is not a core competency of of your asset management group. And so we were told that they were going to let our group go. Uh, because we were the best performing fund in the portfolio of funds that they had, all the salespeople were in an uproar. So they actually ended up Inviting us to come back during this whole period of time, you know I had started doing some individual angel investments. I had led an investment in a uh, multi sport complex development in in the Charlotte area called the charlotte sports center and and that was my first lead angel investment while I was at Bank for America and I really enjoyed it I really enjoyed doing it it was a it was a great partnership in business and so, once they said they were going to let us go, I had a choice of, okay, do I want to go to another asset management firm, do I want to go to New York? you know what do I want to do? or do I want to just try to be an entrepreneur and invest in other startups like I've started doing? And so originally, I was going to do a, a large seed fund, and uh, Charlotte has a ton of capital but not a lot of, not a lot of appetite for risk, right? right So it's all middle market banking and above, which I thought was an opportunity, but it turned out, to be a hindrance for everyone's like, yeah, we're all about startups, but do you have $2 million in EBITDA already? I was like, well, that's not a startup. <laughs> right. So, uh, but anyway, so, but I did start a very small friends and family angel fund. Uh, we made eight to 10 investments through that fund. And, and like I said, I had to make the decision, whether if you go do that or come back and stay at the bank. It was a tough decision because I really enjoyed working for the bank. I enjoyed picking stocks. We were very successful. That would have been the stable way to go, right? Yeah.
0: That
1: would have been the stable way to go. I'm sure if my wife were to be on here and be honest, she probably said, I wish you would have stayed at the bank, Right. (laughs) but she is actually at the bank. So she provides a level of stability for our family and has allowed me to go out and, and take some risk and have some successes and failures along the way.
0: So you've kind of always gone back into uh, kind of the sports side, whether it was raising that first money just for um, the sports arena in Charlotte or to getting into the American Cornhole League. Can you just uh, talk briefly about the the deal you did with ESPN? Because that that feels like to me like that's a a great marketing tool for you. It seems like it's a big deal to be able to get a league. It almost legitimizes it, you know, my eyes as I was kind of doing the research to it. You know, is it difficult for a league to be able to deal with that? Or did COVID kind of help? And I don't know if you got it recently because there was no sports on TV. And then I'm thinking, is this like ESPN, the Ocho, where, you know, you're kind of throwing on, you know, they they want a lot of content and they're looking for random stuff to go through. Kind of talk through a little bit.
1: Yeah. So we've actually, so we've been on ESPN uh, for three years already. You know, when I started out in year number one for our first championships, I wanted to get it on ESPN somehow, some way. My target was ESPN3, their digital platform, as a way to just try to, quote, legitimize cornhole as a sport, right? Because everyone knows cornhole is a tailgating game. It's like, oh, it's a drinking game. Play at tailgates. Yada, yada, yada. How do you convince people this is a legitimate sport? Well, the best way to do that is by showing them and by creating a telecast that showcases the skills of the top players uh, in the game. So I knew that was going to be critical if we wanted to make cornhole a professional sport and, and grow beyond just it being, say, a niche sport, like you said, with that model where people are paying for memberships and, and to go play in events. To be able to attract sponsorships, you really have to be on television or you have to be filling large arenas or both, right? And, and the best case is that you do both. But at a minimum, to attract top sponsors, you got to be on television. I figured it was a three to five year plan. We did our first, we were able to talk ESPN into saying, okay, we'll give this a shot on ESPN3 on our digital platform. Not much risk for us if, it, if it's not good, yeah. right? So yeah, you can be on ESPN3 as long as you meet spec and you're willing to invest the money on the production side and everything else, you know, so ESPN, right? They weren't going to help us at all. So 100% of the cost to do that production and everything and take that risk is all nice. Being on the digital platform is not nearly as attractive to sponsors as being on a, on a network. So, you know, it's very difficult to get money to, to cover our costs for production in terms of sponsorship money. But it was important to be able to, to display the sport, at least even if you're on digital, you do have that ESPN brand next to your league name. So just getting on the digital platform alone was a big accomplishment And then really, it was just kind of happenstance that we invested enough money in our first digital production for ESPN to take notice, where they were shocked about how good our production was, to the degree that by our second championships, they said, we have this live window on ESPN2, and we would like to test out cornhole, would you be interested in doing it? And I said, of course, of course I would. So, you know, I thought it was going to be three to five years before we'd have a shot to be on ESPN2 or ESPN. It actually came right before our second championships. We scrambled to pull off that production. We went viral. So people were just sitting around on Saturday afternoon in the sports bars, and they just started tweeting about it. So it was a Twitter explosion the first time we were on ESPN2. That led immediately to a three-year agreement that we tore up after the second year, and we just finished our first year of our next three-year agreement. So, so yeah, so it was basically networking, convincing them to give us a shot, and then putting a great product on television. So we had to have both of those, you know, first we had to have a shot, then we had to put our best foot forward when we had that shot. And
0: um, you've you had to spend a lot of money on production and, and getting things set up. The events, obviously, you know, you're, you're putting down payments on the events or you're getting staff to be able to work it. There's, there's a, a decent amount of startup costs. I'm just trying to do the math in my head of getting this league up and running to be able to go through. And, and you talked earlier about that difficulty of moving from the buy side to the sell side from, you know, you making investments to you asking in, in capital raises, whether it's friends or family or however you're deciding to do it can you just talk a little bit about what you've learned going from the angel investor side to then being on the entrepreneurial side and being able to build a business? What, what do you, what's been some learnings that you've had just being on both and in particular, as you've moved over to that, you know, running a startup right now?
1: Yeah, I think uh, as a, when you're starting up, you know, one of the hardest things is, is to figure out how much capital you actually need. Depending on the type of business you're going in, uh, there may not be a legitimate business model where you can cut and paste. Like say, if you're starting up a restaurant, or you know, probably even a bakery, like you mentioned, these uh, you know, there's a business model out there that you can kind of cut and paste. You kind of know what your capital costs are going to be, your operating costs. You know, in this situation, uh, when I started this tailgating incubator, I was just kind of bootstrapping it, winging it, right, flying by the seat of my pants just trying to figure out, trying to figure out what is the model. And so, you know, it's difficult to, to raise money if you want to go out and do a formal fundraising round because I've been on both sides, right? I mean, I've invested in plenty of business plans that look great on paper, right? They never turn out the way they look on paper, yeah, no. right? You just know that. And so personally, I don't put a whole lot of, of attention or, or thought or, or reliability on, on the valuation model, it's really more the thought process that you go through when you create your financial model and your business plan in terms of how you're thinking about attacking the business. And you're always going to have speed bumps. So, you know, as I look at other entrepreneurs and myself, I think one of my best attributes is being able to quickly make those adjustments, being able to realize when I'm going down the wrong path with someone or something, the quicker I can make an adjustment, the better off I'm going to be. And so, you know, those are the kind of things that are, that's difficult to put in a model. (laughs) You can't put that in a model. And so if you're out there looking for outside investors, because anytime you take outside money, you're going to give up some level of control. Now you've got to report and be responsible to someone else. And so you have to make sure that that for your particular business, that, that you have a partner or an investor that is going to give you that flexibility to to make failures if you don't have that business model fully figured out. I think the best way to go about it is just be upfront about it. you know just be upfront and you say like I think this is the path we're going to go down, but I want you to know that if I see if something happen or we have a speed bump, we're going to pivot quickly and and I want you to be comfortable with that so
0: it's, you know, it's a hard balance it's, to be able to figure that out right how, how much do you want to put at risk of your own capital and an idea? versus taking on other capital where maybe it reduces your financial risk, but then you lose control or you have somebody that gains a lot of influence over your business where you don't, you might not want that influence to be able to do that. And I think it's good advice as you say through it is, is being very clear that you might not have all the answers and um, that the pivot and the fact that you're going to pivot quickly, if you don't see it going in the right way is an important conversation to have and you get a really good sense of not just going and chasing money, but finding a good strategic partner that's going to actually either add value and you're going to work well with instead of just trying to, to get money too.
1: Yeah. And so I would say, you know, revenue cures your ability or cures your need to seek outside funding. If you can generate revenue somehow from sponsors, then you have some flexibility And, and we've been fortunate to be able to, once we established our deal with ESPN we were able to, to bring on some great partners, specifically Johnsonville has been a fantastic partner for us that has given us the flexibility to grow. You know, maybe not at the fastest pace we could grow if I went out and raised outside money, but we've been able to survive and grow and improve over the last several years because of our partnership with Johnsonville. And it's allowed me to, to now kind of pick and choose if or who I want to be our partners for the long run.
0: You're talking about Johnsonville sausage, right?
1: Yes. Right. Yeah. Johnsonville sausage, the brats.
0: Yeah. Do you think about sports leagues, right? And I think people, mostly, a lot of people think of a success story like a Dana White story, right? Where, you know, he came in and the UFC wasn't doing well and he's completely turned around to a multi billion dollar industry. What's some good advice or even bad advice um, that you heard uh, as you were starting the league from people that might have done it before, they've tried it before, it might have even been your family when they did the semi-pro basketball league. What's some of their good advice, he was like, you know, I'm glad I took that, or you heard it and it just probably wasn't the right advice whether you took it or not.
1: Yeah, well, so like a common theme that I think I think people will say or that we'll hear in the in the cornhole world is like, I'm just in it for the good of the game, or I'm in it for, for the good of the sport, right? And if you use the Dana White example, right, Dana White's in it to make money. We're building cornhole as a professional sport to make money. Certainly, we're interested in growing the sport as a whole, but our focus is really on our brand and on the ACL and growing the sport of cornhole the way that the ACL wants to do it, right? That's what Dana White did with the UFC. That's That's a great example for me in terms of the path that I want us to be on. That doesn't mean that we're going to try to hammer other people. We think, you know, there's startups happening in the cornhole world, left and right. Other competitors trying to come after us, right? And, you know, it's a free market. We welcome competition. That doesn't mean that we should go out and invest and support and market our competitors. So, you know, the people that give me that advice that say we need to be in a quote for the good of the sport, and help out all these other startups that are trying to compete with us. That's, that falls on deaf ears right now.
0: Sounds
1: like bad business. (laughs) Yes, that's bad business. I would not recommend, even for the ones coming to compete against me, I wouldn't recommend that for you. You know, I think that there's there's plenty of opportunities in the cornhole world, just like in the MMA world, there's other leagues and organizations out there outside of the UFC that are successful. And I think the same will be true for our sport, you know, so, so from our sport specifically, that's it. And then, you know, really some of the best advice or really the best phrase that still sticks with me today is from my dad uh when he said, uh, you know, people jump funny when it comes to money. And uh so I always I always remember that. That's kind of the lesson that uh you know, as people are asking me for this and that or saying I should do this and that, you know, I like looking and seeing, you know, how how funny they're jumping, <laughs> so to speak. That's- <laughs> Right. <laughs> it's,
0: a, it's a funny way to phrase it. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. So I mean, that's that was a great. That's some great words of wisdom from my dad.
0: So uh, the last two questions for you. Give me an example of uh, maybe what you would consider your favorite failure, and maybe that's with the uh, American Cornhole League as you've been building it, and the failure you had, or maybe it was, you know, during any part of your career as you moved to uh, starting multiple businesses, including this one. But that's a
1: pretty failure for you. When I was an angel investor, I, I invested in this concept called Shy Genius. I thought it was a great brand name. Uh, it was basically a, uh, a suggestion box for companies to unleash the creativity of their employees. So, you know, the belief is, you know, some of your best ideas and suggestions can come from people that actually work for you. And I believe that. And so they were trying to create a, a platform, a software that would basically manage that uh, process for companies. So it was a really cool idea. There were some good angel investors involved in it. You know, They were passing the hat the third time to, to keep it alive. And uh, you know, two of the three other angel investors didn't wanna put in any more money. I couldn't put in the amount of money that was needed that they weren't gonna put in and contribute. So it just kind of died on the vine, uh, which was unfortunate and it became a failure and uh, lost 100% of my investment in that one. That's my favorite failure, even though uh, even though I lost money on it. I love the idea. Um, so
0: what did you learn from that idea that, uh, that uh, it not working out? What were some takeaways you got from that?
1: Just, you know, how the investor group that you have is important. Timing. Uh, timing is important when anytime you're doing startups, depending on your level of funding, whether you're bootstrapping or anything else, I mean, you Timing has to be good for you and you got to have some breaks along the way, no matter how smart you are, no matter how good you are, you know, you still, you still need to need to have some breaks.
0: Yeah. You know, I I think that's, that's probably been one of the more interesting things is I've invested in other companies and got to spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs. It's uh, as much as the idea could be good, as much as well as, as somebody can execute, have a strong leadership team. Timing's a big play to it because I've seen it where somebody was too early to market and five yeah. years later, that same concept would have absolutely killed it. Yeah, uh, And it's, it's hard to be able to figure out. And then the, the luck part is definitely a piece to it. You know, there's just one connection you had that got you an opportunity that you didn't expect that made it go viral or something yeah. like that. There's, there's definitely a piece. That doesn't mean that that entrepreneur won't be successful at that point. It just might mean that one concept or that one try might not be there, but there's definitely a piece of, of timing and luck that goes into uh, it. Now the way around it is you just keep working your tail off and you keep trying opportunities and sooner or later one hits and you end up with a three-year deal with ESPN. And <laughs> so, uh, so let's talk about uh, then, you know, as you look at that career path, you tell us about your favorite failure. What's your most memorable day in your career? No matter if it's recent past or anything like that that was impactful for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, there, there's so many of them, but I mean, really specific to Cornhole, it was that first ESPN linear broadcast that we had on, on ESPN2 at our second championships. It was incredibly emotional for me. The production company came out of the trailer about, about halfway through the show, and he was kind of laughing. He's like, do you have any idea what's going on right now? And I was like, no, I'm just trying to make sure that, that our Cornhole players show up on the broadcast court when they're supposed to. Because, you know, it's like handhold. you know, no one's ever been a part of a professional broadcast before in our sport. No one knows the fact that you have to be on time, right? We're not, cameras don't wait for anyone. You know, the network's not waiting for anyone. If you're not on the court on time, we're going to have to forfeit you, right? So I'm just, I'm just trying to, like, herd cats during this uh, first broadcast. And the executive producer comes out, and he's like, Twitter is going viral. It's blowing up. He's like, the people on the other side up in Bristol at ESPN are laughing their asses off, enjoying this thing so much. And it was just like, I was like, wow. I was like, that is really cool to hear. And just, you know, after we got through it, after he came back out and it was like, man, that was amazing. It was just, you know, it was just a big emotional rush for me to to just have accomplished that and, and been through it. And I knew that that was going to be a milestone event for us. Right. I mean, I could feel, how important that moment for was for us. I had no idea what that was going to translate to in the future, but I know it was going to give us a lot of opportunities.
0: That's awesome. That's I, I can't imagine when it started to go viral. It was uh, absolutely not what you're expecting. Yeah, You kind of expect it to be a long run trying to get everybody into it. Yeah. And see, uh, see the excitement go through, which tells you you were onto something that first day you were walking around the tailgates.
1: So yeah.
0: More excited about this game and more into this game. Uh, yeah. Other tailgates too. So clearly your R&D wasn't just fun. It was also did, did something well when you figured it out. Hey, Stacy, congratulations on the success of the league. Congratulations on the growth that you're having. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time through uh, talking to us today and giving us some uh, insight into uh, your business, but uh, also some of the successes and learnings that we could take away for our businesses too. We appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Jeremy. Glad to come back anytime. It was a blast.
0: All right, Stacey, talk to you soon. Have a great day. Bye. I appreciate you listening to the Upreneur podcast. Please make sure to rate, subscribe, and also share the podcast for people you think might find it interesting. Along with that, if you're an entrepreneur or thinking about becoming a business owner, a great resource to take a look at is our partners at SCORE, where you see retired executives being able to help mentor new budding entrepreneurs. You can find them at SCORE.org, or in particular, we're in a partnership with Broward SCORE if you're in South Florida. Along with that, check us out on our Instagram. It's Upreneur. That's Upreneur with a U, not Y-O-U. That U stands for the University of Entrepreneurs, here to be able to give you and learn from the best and the brightest of entrepreneurs here in Florida. I appreciate you listening. Have a great day.